Welcome to Best Served Cold, a Bore Millennials podcast, where we drink wine and talk about crime. Presented to you by Tama J and Laura Lees. Hey. And we're live. Welcome to the show. What's Welcome up? to Best Served Cold. Yeah. The show where we drink wine and talk about crime, but now we're going to have to come up with a different tagline because we don't drink wine anymore. Yeah, I mean, we still drink we wine. We still drink we're wine. We're still human but beings. We've started a new thing where we're drinking a different cocktail each week. Yeah. With the show. Anyway, we'll come up with a different tagline. Either that or maybe the cocktail thing will become like a an extra mm. thing to our show. We may have something cooking for y'all. Yeah. You'll just have to wait and see. But I'm one of your co-hosts, Laura, and beneath this meat suit, I am actually just a tiny grapefruit with legs. And I am Tama J. The J stands for Jerry Seinfeld was an underrated comedian. <laughs> was he, though? He was. Was He's he? He's pretty good. What's the deal with murderers? They murder, and then they don't murder. Wow, that was a... um. That impression, like it was like he was in the room. Yeah. What's the deal with Laura? Is she Bray? Is she Elise? What's the difference? Wow, just out me in my full name. Yeah. Thanks. And your credit card number and address? Social security number, which isn't a thing in Australia, no, but. Yeah, it's just for you, Yanks. And I say Yanks in the nicest way possible. Because there are a lot of you. I think now. Our lovely American audience represents like over 60% yeah. of our listeners. So send us shit. Send us fucking like Pop Tarts and like. Yes. Oh my God. Can you actually though? I would yeah. be so happy if someone wanted to send me American like lollies and totally. stuff. Yeah. That, it, I, that That's like my kind of goal. Uh, not my goal, but like one of the milestones I have for this show is like. We could, we could kind of like enough so of a happy. fan base where we can set up a P.O. box and people just send us But, I mean, we're not stuff. greedy. We are happy to send you back Australian yeah. treats. Tim Tams are the best thing ever. Mm-hmm. And they're kind of like Oreos for uh, America in the sense that there's many different variations of them. And you do this magical thing called the Tim Tam Slam, which is you nibble off. So, Tim Tams are like rectangular and coated in chocolate. Mm. So, what you're going to do is you've got to bite off a corner of each like on the diagonal and then you get hot liquid and because it's like a wafer biscuit in the middle so it's got it's very airy you can put one corner of the tim tam in your mouth one corner of the the other corner of the tim tam in the drink and then like suck it up like a straw and then all the chocolate in the middle goes all melty and it's the best thing ever yeah i've never been a huge fan of um the tim tam slam well, you can get it's out it's really been my thing but i've also never really been a milky drink uh tea i do it with coffee up. That just sounds wrong. No, it's With chocolate ice, and coffee. Ice long, well, sorry, a long oh. black, sorry. Yeah. Chocolate mm. and coffee is a time-honored combination of flavors. I just feel like it's one of those things that like, it's just a, exceptional in its purest form. You might as well just... It's like wow. deep frying chocolate bars. Like it's kind of just excessive. Also excellent. Uh, it's, it's fine, but it's I'm just sorry, kind of excessive. I'm sorry, deep fried Mars bars are the best and you will not change my mind on okay. that. Okay. Anyway, moral of the story, please send us American food because yeah. there is one place in Sydney that you can get... American cereal, like Lucky Charms and stuff, but they're literally like... Yeah, they charge you like a lot. $18 a box. It's just a bit much. So... Like uh, conversion rates and import rates just kind of Yeah, it's not a up. good time. So please send us treaties. Yeah. Uh, so for tonight's episode, we are sipping on a... Uh, is it 
It's La Paloma, so isn't it? I think then... it's referred to as Paloma, but the real technical term for it is La Paloma. Right. So we put out, if you follow us on Twitter, at the BSC podcast, we put out a poll yesterday uh, to let you pick which drink we will be drinking this evening. I am a huge gin fan, so I was really hoping that my gin-based cocktail, the Enzoni, would win. Sadly, it was not only beaten, it was pummeled Destroyed. to a pulp by... The tequila-based Paloma. So yeah. do you want to run anyone listening through what a Paloma is, Tama, just quickly? Yeah. So a Paloma is... The recipe I went off was 60 mils of tequila, and we were using um, El Jimador, which is... I, I'm not too sure if it's an Australian... Reposado, isn't it? Sorry? Is it the type of tequila? Like, it's called a Reposado tequila? Is that... No, did I just make that up? No, I continue. don't know, but it is an agave-based tequila. Um... And I think it's Australian. I'm not too sure. But um, the reason I found it was through Steve, the bartender. Again, um, Steve, we love you. Yeah. Uh, and then it's f- uh, 15 mils of lime juice. And then you basically just top it up with either grapefruit soda or grapefruit juice. Freshly squeezed is pre- preferable if you're going to mm. go that route. It's delicious. We typically put freshly squeezed grapefruit juice in our Paloma just because it's... I mean, I kind of like a non-soda base cocktail. I don't mind a bit of a fizz. Neither. But I think I, that I would kind of... make it not... I mean, it's great, but I think it would just kick it over the edge. Fair enough. A yeah. Bit I kind of like the still cocktails. That's kind of mm. like my jam. But yeah, that's what we're drinking this evening. You voted. We made. As I said, we may be cooking something up mm-hmm. on the side um, yep. that these cocktails are going to play a part of. So we'll keep you filled in on that yeah. shortly. Uh, the only other housekeeping thing I have is we have some merch. We always had like some merch, but it was basically like our logo on T-shirts, which I think our logo is cool anyway. Mm-hmm. But uh, I've been working hard to make some like cute little custom designs for us. So I do believe that the company we go through is actually having a sale at the moment. So you can get t-shirts for like $18. So the link will be in our show notes. So if you would like to support the show by buying some merch and repping the show on your skin, you know. Ed Gein style. I'm so bad at these. Yeah, you are. <laughs> I need to like script these because I just, I start strong and then yeah. I get to the end and I don't know how to wrap it up. To, so I'm like, yeah, cool. TLDR, if you want to support us, we have merch on a external website. Buy that. We get a percentage of it. Um, kickback. Uh, and the shirt's really cool. Uh, it's a design made by Laura. She actually designed it herself. It's a uh, original um, design. And I think it looks cool in a shirt. Um, I will admit, it's a little bit feminine. So I think the next lot, I'm aiming to do two different designs a month. So the next round, I sort of have it in my head what I want to do. And it's going to be a bit more gender neutral slash... I mean, not that that's kind of bullshit to be like, oh, men can't wear purple. But I mean, it is a little... It's definitely on the... If you don't mind something being on the feminine edge, it doesn't matter. And to be fair, we've looked at the the statistics for our show and it seems to be predominantly a larger female audience. The ladies are coming in strong. Hey, ladies. So... Should we? Do we have any other housekeeping? I forgot to ask you how your week was. Well, my week was uh, pretty good. Um... We we've been prepping for. We got a, a lot of small little dinner um, because we're in New South Wales. We currently aren't 
seeing the worst of this. Um, or I don't want to really name it just to it's a bit of trigger people, but oh, okay. this epidemic. Uh, we got people coming over on the weekend. We're gonna have like a little dinner thing, and um, cocktails. I'm the registered bartender. Although one of the guys we have coming over is a natural bar mixer, mixologist. So, so I'm sure he will help. Yeah, um, it's 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 kind of like teaching slash how to play guitar. Yeah, it's just you're not gonna have a good time. Um, but anyway, yeah, I've, we've we've just been prepping for that. Yeah, it's been um, it's I, been my first week, sort of, with my all my tape and stuff yeah, from my surgery yeah. off my face. Uh, so that's been fun. I've been back to the gym, which has been nice to get like a bit of normalcy back because it sounds so silly, but even though it was such a small thing to get cut off, it made such a big difference in terms of like my general everyday comfort. So it was just like 10 days of not a good time. Yeah. So I'm very glad to... And I don't have to get a second surgery, which I was really stressing about. And it's interesting because we were saying like you kind of... Not that you look like a completely different person, but there's definitely a perspective change in everything. Well, not everything, but like yeah. your face is essentially different. slightly different. Something that was on my face for like eight years is yeah. now no longer on my face. Yeah. So. Anyway, I think we were both saying that we both have longish stories and I'm really excited to talk about mine. It's your so, turn to go first anyway. No, it's your turn to go first, isn't it? No, I went first last Did, time, I Are you believe. sure? Yeah, I believe so. Are you sure? I think. I feel like you should go first because, I mean, I can go first if you want. Mine's kind of a bummer. A big, okay. Well, I mean, uh, I mean yes, all of these are kind of a bummer, to be fair. I mean, I can go. Do you want me to go first? I can go first. Yeah, sure. Go all right, it. I'll go first. Hang on, I've just got to how to change a pace here. Just got to get my notes on. Entertain yeah. the timer. Well, um, so I don't know if you've seen the show title so far, but <clears> um, we're recontinuing from last episode, my Madeline McCann um, thesis. Yeah. And I actually put a poll out on Twitter today asking people, I'm going to pull up the results of that because the results I had this afternoon, I was actually quite surprised about, but, uh, on Twitter, we put out a poll and y'all voted and, Oh, see, it's changed now because when I looked at it before, it was 60% of people who'd voted thought that her parents did it. Um, but it's still pretty close. 43% of voters think that her parents did it and 57% think that someone else did it. So I'm still shocked that that many people think. Yeah. But you got to also remember that they haven't done the research. The research. That we have, yeah, yeah, for sure. And it's, that, it's a huge issue. That's what this show is for. Yeah, exactly. And that's to bring the kind you of issue the unbiased facts. I mean, for the longest time, I thought the dingo story was uh, yeah, the parents. So did that. I. Yeah, that's true. You know? Well, this week is a really big one, particularly for Tama and I being that A, it's an Australian case, but B, it's a huge event that basically shaped the world that Tama and I as Australians live in today because it was the thing, not part of it, it was the thing that changed the gun laws in Australia to what they are now, which is one of the strictest gun laws in the world. So I think it's us and Singapore have the two strictest gun laws in the entire world. Right. And this was uh, 
the reason why. So for a quick briefing, I'm going to be talking about the Port Arthur Massacre, which occurred in 1996. And up until last year, it was in the top 10 deadliest gun massacres in the entire world, which to put in context, there was only one other massacre prior to 2000 that was in the top 10. So everything else was after 2000, when obviously you're talking about a lot more advanced weaponry. Yeah. And it now sits at number 11, as sadly it was knocked out of the top after the New Zealand massacre last year. Mm-hmm. So it's now at the 11th deadliest massacre. I think it's still the possibly the most deadliest one in Australia, though, for sure. Oh, yeah. Well, we haven't had any after. Yeah. There weren't, I don't think there, were, there weren't really any before, and there have been none no, after. There was that one case with the Lint Cafe, which it didn't, wasn't even a mass shooting, it was like a hold up of someone who was mentally ill. Yeah, that yeah, and even that was not a like an assault rifle. No, I think it was like a shotgun or a pistol. Yeah, or something. I think it was a pistol. I'm not 100 percent sure, so don't quote me on that. Yeah. So there's sort of three different parts of this that I want to talk about. There's the obviously the event itself. Then there's the shooter Martin Bryant, who I want to go into his little kind of backstory before the event a little bit to give some context. And then I'm also going to briefly touch on what happens. After, as in what the Australian government's response to this event and how it's the correct response. Okay. So, just would like to clarify, <laughs> if you are someone in America who loves your guns, I'm not trying to offend you, but I think they're stupid. So, yeah, you know. Even if you do like them. Everyone is entitled to their opinion. Fair enough. But it's that's just it's more opinion. so the context in which you can get obtain them is yeah. very strange. So I'm going to briefly outline the life of Martin first. And I don't really want to stay on this particular part of the story for too long because I'd much rather sort of spend time on the event itself, kind of more honouring the victims of the shooting. So Martin Bryant was born, born May 7th, 1967. And in terms of his childhood, he had a pretty normal life, as in he didn't have any sort of traumatic childhood events. He didn't have any head injuries that I could see. However, that's not to say that he wasn't a strange cookie. So he was the oldest of two children and he was always regarded as being a bit odd. And when he was a young child, he was diagnosed with an IQ of only 66, which is considered to potentially indicate a mental disability. Yeah, of course. But he was also described, and this was by his mother, as annoying that was point blank the definition that his mother okay. gave in an interview in 2011. She said he was annoying, aggravating, and difficult as a child. Because the son indication to his childhood, I guess. Which I feel all children are annoying to some degree. Yeah, but I say that because I'm not a huge children fan. But for the first thing that your mother says about you in an interview, in an interview is yeah. that you were, annoying. you were annoying. That says something. Yeah. So as as a young man, as he gets older, he also has kind of odd, disturbing tendencies as well. And later in life, when his father dies of an alleged suicide, Martin seems excited by all the officers and the ambulance, and he's really quite unconcerned about the actual death of his father, which is also suspicious as his father was found um, at the bottom of a dam on the property they lived with a diving weight belt around his neck. Huh. But it was ultimately ruled a suicide. However, there are a lot of people who think maybe it wasn't a suicide. Yeah. 
So due to his diminished mental capacity, he was on a disability pension, but he did pick up odd jobs here and there like mowing lawns and gardening and handyman jobs. And this is where he meets Helen Harvey. And this next part is a wild ride. And I Mm -hmm. wish he wasn't such a psychopath because this whole part of the story is so fantastic. It's like something from Gatsby. I love it so much. (laughs) So Helen was the heiress of the Tattersall's lottery fortune and they befriend each other and Helen invites Martin to live with her and just basically showers him in cash. Now, all of this is well and good, but keeping in mind that at this time, Martin is 19 and Helen is 54. Oh, shit. Also a woman after my own heart. She owns 14 dogs that live inside her home and 40 cats which live in her garage. What the fuck? Now, when I say that Helen was splashing the cashin, I mean it. So they bought 30 cars in the space of three years. They'd always go out to expensive dinners and lunches and just basically spent all day, every day shopping up a storm. That was all they did. So she was balling. She was balling. So in 1991, Helen and Martin moved to the countryside and Martin is reported as wandering around with an air rifle, which he would routinely (laughs) shoot at tourists who stopped by the roadside fruit stands. (laughs) So you just go around... Shooting people with an air rifle. What the fuck? So in 1992, Helen is killed after her car veers onto the wrong side of the road and she's hit by an oncoming truck. Most people suspect that it's highly likely Martin had something to do with this because he was in the car at the time of the accident and it's been reported in previous incidences he had a habit of like lunging across the center of the car to fuck with the steering wheel. Right. And they'd already actually had several accidents as a result of this, so much so that Helen was quoted as saying that she never drove above 60 kilometers an hour or 37 miles per hour for our American friends. So Martin is the only heir to Helen's fortune, and from that he inherits $550,000, which in current times is um, a little over a million dollars. Damn. Plus, after his father commits suicide, he also inherits his father's superannuation, which for Americans, I think is kind of like a 401k. I oh, think. that's what that is. Okay. I think. And he gets another $250,000 from that. Yeah. And then this is the part where I just really wish he wasn't such an awful human being so I could just revel in how amazing this next part I'm going to read is. So he basically takes all this money and just becomes a modern-day Gatsby. Or not really. Yeah, modern-day. It's the 90s. He just gallivants around the globe on holidays where people basically still think he's weird and don't want to talk to him or befriend him or have anything to do with him. Mm-hmm. But the best thing ever, allegedly he loved long haul flights because he has a captive audience of people who have to put up with him uh-huh. and would have these long conversations where the people sitting next to him or around him were forced to be polite and engage with him, which as someone with social anxiety is just my worst nightmare. Yeah. Like, people trying to talk to me on any form of public transport is just like, please don't. Please don't look at me. Don't talk to me. Just leave me alone. Just, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, now that he's alone, he also starts dressing more bizarrely. He would often wander around town wearing a grey linen suit, a cravat, lizard skin shoes and a Panama hat while carrying a briefcase, walking around and telling anyone who would listen that he had a well-paying career and he was a businessman. (laughs) He would often also wear an electric blue suit with flared trousers and a big ruffled shirt to the restaurant that he frequented. And the restaurant owner 
said, quote, it was horrible. Everyone was laughing at him, even the customers. I really felt suddenly quite sorry for him. I realized this guy didn't really have any friends, end quote. I fucking vibe with that suit. Electric blue suit with a big ruffled <laughs> shirt. Like he's fucking in the 1930s. See, this is what I mean. Like it, it's, it pains me that he's such an awful human being because that image in my head is just so fantastic. I want to focus on that. Maybe he was a, maybe he's a time traveler. He's a what? Time traveler. A time traveler. A time traveler. So unsurprisingly, with Helen dead, his father's dead, and literally no one wants to speak to him, he becomes incredibly suicidal, and this is where it kind of starts to go downhill. His consumption of alcohol dramatically increases, especially in the six months leading up to the massacre. Okay, so the morning of 28th of April, 1996, Martin, who is now 29 years of age, wakes up at 6am, which anyone who knew him said was strange because... He had no reason to get up at 6am because he was rich and didn't have a job and would never get up before midday, allegedly. Okay. And according to his home security system, it's activated at 9.47am, meaning that's when he left the house. So he gets in his car and drives into a town called Seascape and arrives at around 1145 he stops there at the Seascape guest accommodation where his father had previously had a dispute with the current owners because his father had tried to buy this like bed and breakfast hotel thing essentially and been bought out by this other couple called David and Nolene Martin. So then Al Martin, Martin is his first name, goes inside, fires several shots, then gags David and stabs him. Whoa. When he goes to leave, there's another couple who has just shown up like outside the accommodation. And I can't imagine what this couple to this day must think. They assume Martin is the owner and ask if they can go inside. And Martin goes, no, my parents are away and my girlfriend's inside and you need to fuck off. And they leave. Um, wow, like, okay. Can you imagine being that couple and like seeing his picture on the news and being like, holy shit, that was that kid at the accommodation we went to when he wouldn't let us inside. Holy shit. And there's two dead bodies inside, which is why he won't they, let them in. They didn't notice the bodies. They don't. Well, they're, they're inside the house and they're outside. Right, okay. So the couple leaves at around 12.35 p.m. Martin locks up the property, taking the keys with him and heads towards Port Arthur at around... 110, he reaches the Port Arthur historic site and he gets in line at the toll booth, pays the entry fee and heads towards the site's cafe, which is called the Broad Arrow Cafe. And it's right near the water's edge, like on the ocean. Mm -hmm. So he originally parks his car right near the entrance to the cafe, but the security guard tells him that he can't. So he parks further away and then the same security guard is quoted as saying that he remembers Martin walking past him into the cafe carrying a large sports bag and a video camera. So Martin goes inside. He attempts to start conversations with people again. No one wants to have a bar of him. So he purchases a meal, goes outside and sits and eats. After he finishes his meal, he takes his tray and goes back inside and this is sadly where everything kind of starts so keeping in mind this isn't some massive cafe it's quite a small cafe and it's a beautiful day so the park is really busy and there's quite a few people crammed into a small space so martin goes to the back of the room puts his bag on a table 
and pulls out a Colt AR-15 SP-1 carbine with a Colt scope and one round 30 magazine. Holy shit. So because there are quite a few surviving eyewitnesses, what happens next is actually a lot of detail available as to exactly what happened and which victims were injured or killed in what order and sort of everything that happened. So one of the articles I found, which I sourced from a website I use a lot for research called Murderpedia, basically has a blow-by-blow account of what happens that I'm going to read out verbatim. And there's a reason why I want to read it in such detail, which because normally I don't like to go into too much detail, especially with stuff like this, because it's just so sad. But there's a reason. So it's going to get a little awful from this point for like the next three minutes. So if you don't want to hear really detailed descriptions of people being shot, maybe just fast forward three minutes. Okay. So Martin takes aim from his hip and points his rifle at Mo Yi William, Ng and Su Leng Chung, who were visiting from Malaysia and they were seated at a table beside Martin. He shot them at close range, killing both instantly. Bryant, Uh, Martin then fires a shot at Mick Sargent, grazing his scalp and knocking him to the floor. He fires a fourth shot that kills Sargent's girlfriend, 21-year-old Kate Elizabeth Scott, by hitting her in the back of the head. A 28-year-old New Zealand winemaker, Jason Winter, had been helping the busy cafe staff. As Martin turned toward Winter's wife, Joanne and their 15-month-old son, Mitchell, Winter threw a serving tray at Martin in an attempt to distract him. Joanne Winter's father pushed his daughter and grandson to the floor and underneath the table. 44-year-old Anthony Nightingale stood up after the sound of the first shots but had no time to move. Nightingale yelled, no, not in here, as Martin points the weapon at him. As Nightingale leans forward, he's fatally shot through the neck and spine. The next table held a group of 10 friends, but some had just left the table to return their meal trays and visit the gift shop. Martin fires one shot that kills Kevin Vincent Sharp, 68 years old. The second hit Walter Bennett, 66, passed through his body and struck Raymond John Sharp, 67, Kevin Sharp's brother, killing them both. The three of them had their back towards Martin and were unaware of what was happening. They at first believed that someone's letting off firecrackers and one of them makes the comment of that's not funny after hearing the first few shots not realizing what they are. So the shots are all close range with the gun at or just inches away from the back of their heads. Gerald Broom, Gay Fiddler and her husband John were all struck by bullet fragments but survive. Martin then turns towards Tony and Sarah Kistain and Andrew Mills. Both men stand up at the noise of the initial shots but have no time to move away. Andrew Mills is shot shot in the head. Tony Kistain was also shot from about two metres away, also in the head, but had managed to push his wife away prior to himself being shot. Sarah Kiston was apparently not seen by Martin as she's she's pushed down and manages to get underneath the table. Thelma Walker and Pamela Law were injured by fragments uh, before being dragged to the ground by their friend Peter Crosswell as the three shelter underneath the table. Also injured by the fragments from these shots were, was Patricia Barker. It was only then that majority of people in the cafe start to realise what's happening because at first they think... Because it's a historical site, they think it might be a reenactment because they think things like that were common at this place. They do reenactments of the war and stuff like that. 
So at this point, there's great confusion and many people don't know what to do as Martin is standing near the main exit of the cafe. So Martin moves just a few meters and begins shooting at the table where Graham, Collier, Caroline Lawton and their daughter Sarah were seated. Collier was severely injured in the jaw, nearly choking to death on his own blood. Sarah runs towards her mother, who'd been moving between tables. Carolyn throws herself on top of her daughter. Martin shoots Carolyn in the back. Her eardrum was ruptured by the muzzle blast from the gun going off beside her ear. She survives her injuries, but after coming out of surgery, despite her efforts, learned that her daughter, Sarah, has been fatally shot in the head. So Martin pivots around and... uh, pivots around and shoots Mervyn Howard, who was seated. The bullet passes through him and through a window of the cafe and hits a table on the outside balcony. Martin quickly follows up with a shot to the head for Mervyn Howard's wife, Mary. Martin then leans over a vacant baby stroller and points the gun at her head and shoots her a second time. Both of the Howard's injuries are fatal. Bryant, uh, Martin was near the exit, preventing others from attempting to run past him and escape. Martin moves across the cafe towards the gift shop area There was an exit door through the gift shop to the outside balcony, but it's locked and can only be opened with a key. So as Martin moves, Robert Elliott stands up and he's shot in the arm and head left slumping across the fireplace but alive. Now, normally, as I said, I wouldn't go into that much detail. The reason I wanted to read all that in such detail, firstly, we spend a lot of time talking about the actual murderers and I kind of wanted to give a bit more time to the actual people that lost their lives. Secondly, everything that I just read occurs in 15 seconds. From the first bullet to the last bullet, 15 seconds. I was thinking like when you were saying that and and you're saying they stand up, but they had no time to move. Like that's, I'm, I'm honestly speechless. Just listening to this. Because you hear all that and you think in your head, you're kind of like, okay, that sounds like sort of three to five minutes, 15 seconds. That Um, all happens in. Yeah. I I honestly don't know what to say. Yeah. So the, the next set of events occurs a little bit slower. I think maybe by this time he's sort of gained a bit of confidence and he takes his time sort of picking people off a bit more. So he moves towards the gift shop and fatally shoots 17-year-old Nicole Burgess in the head and 26-year-old Elizabeth Howard in the arm and chest, who were the two young girls who worked behind the gift shop counter. The next sort of scenes, and I won't go into as much detail as I did previously because, A, it's it's awful and there's like stories of family members throwing themselves on top of their loved ones or like people going like running away and then going back to try and find their family members and then getting shot. It's just all really awful. So I'm not going to like go into too much detail, but by the time Martin leaves the gift shop cafe area and moves to the car park, he's killed 20 people and wounded 12. Jesus. So obviously during all this, people are starting to realize what's happening and are trying to like flee through, which is when he goes into the car park and continues picking people off. What's worse is there are people who were like further away out of eyesight who again hear all these gunshots and think it's a reenactment and rather than running away, start to move toward the area. Yeah. Now there is one story that I kind of wanted to highlight because it it really 
kind of highlights the sort of gun we're talking about, which was a big part of why this was so awful. So Ashley John Law was a site employee and he was attempting to move people away from the cafe into the information centre when Martin fires at him from 100 metres away. The bullet misses Law and hits some trees nearby, but like that's the sort of weapon you're talking about where you can reasonably aim at another human being from 100 metres away. Yeah, and he's shooting people point blank or two metres apart. Yeah. So at this stage, it's absolute havoc. There are those huge like bus coaches that are parked in the parking lot as obviously there's a lot of tourists. People are trying to run around them and hide on the opposite sides or hide underneath them. And Martin basically takes his time and stalks people around the buses and hunts them down essentially. Some people start moving away from the car park towards the jetty on the water, but other people start to shout that Martin is heading that way. So then they try and double back only to then be caught between the car park and the water and picked off. So at this point, Martin returns to his car and changes weapons to a self-loading rifle. A man called Neville Quinn, who had escaped to the jetty area but returned to look for his wife, he's spotted by Martin and chases him around the coaches. Bryant fires at him at least twice before Quinn runs into the coach. Bryant, um, sorry, Martin then enters the coach and points the gun at Neville, Neville Quinn's face, saying, no one gets away from me. Quinn ducks when he realizes that Martin is about to pull the trigger. The bullet thankfully misses his head, but hits his neck momentarily paralyzing him. But Neville does survive. So this is when Martin begins to move back towards the toll booth. At this stage, he's killed 26 people and injured 18. So Martin then gets back into his car and leaves the car park and starts to drive up back up the driveway, I guess, towards the toll booth where he comes across Nanette uh, Mikak and her children, Madeline and Alana, who are three and six. Nanette is carrying Madeline and Alana, who's a six-year-old, is running slightly ahead. At this point, they've made it about 600 metres away from the car park. Martin slows down and opens the door of his car, and at first Nanette thinks that it's someone trying to help her get away, and she actually runs towards the car. But people who see this happening yell out, like, no, that's him, that's him. But it's too late. Martin steps out of the car, puts his hand on Nanette's shoulder and tells her to get on her knees. She does so, pleading with him, please don't hurt my babies. Martin then shoots her in the temple. Next, he fires a shot at the baby, Madeline, which hits her in the shoulder and then shoots her fatally through the chest. Alana, the six-year-old, is still running, trying to get away. Martin shoots at her first missing, but then chases her down and fatally shoots her in the temple as well. It's like, it's just so awful. Like you hear about, I feel like we we almost get desensitized to these shootings because you hear about them so often, sadly, in the media. But when you actually break it down into what happened, like it's so awful. It's a, it's literally it's the difference between a st- statistic, even and hearing at, someone's name. But even as normalized as it is in America now, we're like like that. It's every single day. Essentially, you hear something new. You, when you hear like. 15 people, 10 people, 5 people, 50 people, then it's a number. It's a number of people and you go, oh, well, at least it wasn't like this one. That was 30 people. Yeah. But you, when you break it down and you start to hear the names of the 20 or so people and, and it's literally you hear 20 different names, you realize that these are people who had families and had children or were children. Yeah. They had cousins. They had best friends. They had 
employers, they had employees, they are human beings. And when you break it down like that, it's so fucking terrifying and disgusting and that something like this happens. It's just so sad. And what I... And what I and what people don't ever really realize is when you hear this massacre, you hear a massacre, you hear 10 people died, 10, 20 people died. Some of those people are children. Like yeah, this man just so shot a baby and a six-year-old. A baby held in the arms of its mother, Her, its mother. which he's just shot. Yeah. It's nearly over, I promise. Okay. So at this point... When he leaves the toll booth and steals a BMW, Bryant has killed. Sorry, I keep I've written down his surname in Martin. my notes, but then I keep referring to him as his first name, and then I keep tripping up on my own notes. So Martin has killed thirty three people and injured nineteen. So a man called Graham Sutherland, who is one of the men who Martin has been shooting at through the car windows, because obviously he's driving up this driveway. It's not like an empty driveway. There are other people trying to drive away, other people who were trying to come in, and he's sh- he doesn't kill anyone of these people, but he's shooting at people through their car windows, just kind of blindly shooting out windows. So one of these people is Graham Sutherland, who gets gets back in his car and races to the nearest service station to try and warn people. However, by this stage, Martin also arrives at the same service station it's here he stops a car with two people zoe hall and glenn pears he fatally shoots zoe hall and abducts her boyfriend glenn pears by forcing him into the boot of the bmw he'd stolen and locking him in the boot so zoe hall was the 34th victim killed by martin jesus at this point martin returns to seascape where the first killings happened basically again randomly shooting at cars as he goes, he reaches Seascape where his first victims are still dead inside. He stops the car, forces Pez from the boot, takes him inside and handcuffs him to a staircase in the household where at some stage during the standoff, because there's a fairly lengthy standoff through the evening into the next morning with the police, at some stage, um, Glenn Pez is also shot and he's Martin's 35th and final victim. So the following morning after a standoff with police, they believe Martin purposely starts a fire in the house to try and sort of create havoc so he can escape. However, it doesn't work, thankfully, and Martin eventually attempts to flee the house with his clothes on fire and the police arrest him. Martin is tried for the 35 murders and despite pleading not guilty, he's found guilty of all charges and sentenced to several consecutive life sentences in prison where he remains to this day although he has attempted suicide on several occasions. But he's not been successful and he's still in prison today. Do you know, um, before you end it, something interesting that I want to touch on is that you've mentioned a few times that he's suicidal before and after, before and like prior, prior and post to the massacre. Yeah. It's interesting because um, a lot of there's a lot of things that touch on people who have this like low concept of the real world, like what the real world is Mm. like, this isn't real or nothing matters because my life is going to end soon anyway. And I kind of wonder like if he's mentally ill or at the very least incompetent. Well, I think he's very mentally ill, but I think he's also, he has an IQ of 66. So he's also very mentally limited in terms of, I guess, intelligence. But I think it's interesting that I think it's, 
safe to say that he has this concept of he's trying to end his life, so his life has no meaning, or rather, he wants to bring. I don't think he wants to bring something to an end. So he well, he does has so it's more so he feels there's no real meaning. Well, what to I it. found really interesting is he doesn't try and suicide by cop, which is such a common thing with these types of shootings he wants where. To survive. Yeah, he tries to run away, which just doesn't seem to quite fit with the narrative for me. So I've got one last thing to talk about, which is what happens next, which I think is very important because this is the knee-jerk and correct response that everyone should have when stuff like this happens. So Australia as a nation and the whole world basically is heartbroken The federal government leads state governments, some of which, notably Tasmania, which is where this occurs, and no surprise, Queensland, were opposed to any new gun laws to severely restrict the availability of firearms. Like, they're like, don't take our guns. And the government was like, go fuck yourself. So after discovering that, the Christian Coalition and, no surprise, the US NRA were supporting the gun lobbyists in Australia, which the NRA is not even an Australian institution, no, so it's like, what are you off. doing? Um, the government and the media cite their support of changing gun laws along with the moral outrage of the community to discredit the gun lobby as extremists. Yeah, well, they are. You hear that, America? Sorry, I shouldn't like sing. I'm sure no. everyone who's American who's listening to this podcast is absolutely lovely, Just but I get very fired up about The NRA laws. and also the... Christian, who was it? The Christian Coalition. Just fuck off. Just, just. <laughs> it makes the me fuck so down. angry. Like religion has nothing to fucking even do with this. So yeah, just fuck it off. It just makes me very angry. It's so fucking stupid. So under federal government coordination, all states and territories of Australia severely restrict the legal ownership and use of self-loading rifles, self-loading shotguns, and tighten controls on their legal use by like of recreational shooters. The government initiates a mandatory buyback scheme with the owners paid according to a table of valuations. Some 643,000 firearms are handed in at a cost of $350 million, which is uh, funded by a temporary increase to uh, the Medicare levy, which to anyone listening, it's like a Medicare is our universal health care, and each year in our taxes we obviously have to pay a portion of that to support the healthcare system. So they temporarily raised the Medicare levy to fund the buyback scheme for firearms. And that's how you do it. That's it's actually that simple. Well, I mean, it's not for America because it's part of their constitution, which is why it's so much more complicated, but, yeah, uh, but fucking was, we have one as well and no one really knows. No, but the, the right to bear arms is like a part of their constitution. It so is, it's a lot harder to change. But it was also written at a time where dudes wore fucking wigs to hide up there. <laughs> no, I just syphilis, mean it's not, so. it's, it's a, there's, I'm, there's a lot more that goes into changing the constitution. There is. Well, so that's why it's a bit more of a, I'm not saying it can't be done. I'm just saying it's a lot more complicated. It is a lot more complicated than just saying change the law. Yeah. Because there, it's the same thing with us in Australia with the, coal lobby with anything to do with coal the Adani coal mines it's a huge industry in Australia that funds a lot of the things that we use in Australia and it's terrible and we should abolish it but the government wouldn't ever want to fucking get rid of it because it's a huge payout same thing with the NRA in America 
gun is the guns NRA are is a, terrifying. They're a huge industry in America. The NRA a fucking scares huge me. industry in America that that provides a lot of money for the economy. Yeah. So the the government in America is just going. Uh, I don't know. Probably not. But I think a part of the the huge outrage is because people can't believe that someone who was clearly as mentally unwell and governmentally supported on a disability pension for being mentally incapacitated, he was so able to easily get not just like a single-use shotgun, like a assault rifle, essentially, without a gun license. He didn't have a gun license. Two weapons that their sole purpose is to to destroy something yeah. from a, a distance away. Which it's crazy. That's, that's the issue that I think that most anti-gun lobbyists and, and activists are preaching for is no one necessarily says we should ban all guns, which I personally think you should, but that's not... The, yeah, the but gen- there's a big the difference voice. between a handgun and yes. like a cult rifle. I like there, there's, there's there are people who think guns as a whole are just detrimental to our our to society and humanity in general. But the yeah. idea of like gun laws is that someone who has an IQ as him and has mental Ill health issues, who's recognized by the government as ha- as being severely mentally ill, shouldn't legally be able to acquire a firearm. I can tell you're getting really worked up about this. It's it's something I'm very. I don't, it's something I'm very concerned about. No, well, I mean, it is. It, it's 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 very sad, and I think part of the reason, like we were saying in uh, last week's episode, after we played our mm. mini segment, the concept of like mass shootings or someone turning up to a school or a shopping center with a gun is so foreign to us because that happened. Over two decades ago, yeah, we've not had one mass shooting, and it and but also just that that hits so fucking hard. It's so because awful, it's, isn't it? we hear about it happening in, you know, we hear about it happening in America, happening in Paris, even happening in fucking New Zealand. But it happening in Australia is just such a. It's always different when it's something home. Exactly. Yeah. Not to not to negate the reality of what yeah, it's awful externally. everywhere, but obviously it's it. It there's becomes something... a lot more personal when it's on exactly, your own yeah. There's something door. that's just so so horrible about it. Yeah, but yeah, that was um, and I am was quite shocked that like I don't remember being taught that in school, and I think it's an incredibly important part of our Australian history that people don't know a lot about. Like I knew that. There was a massacre which triggered our gun laws that we have today. But I didn't know that, A, it was that bad. And for some reason, I thought it was in Darwin, which is a, like a completely different part of the country. That's just me not being good at geography, probably. Yeah. But, yeah. It would yeah. Probably, probably never happen in Darwin. Well, they've got enough things to worry about in Darwin. There's killer they crocodiles got, and jellyfish and... It literally everything will kill you in Darwin. Yeah. It, it, even just finding water in Darwin yeah. sometimes. Is... Just don't go outside in Darwin. Yeah. It's a beautiful place though. Lovely, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a gorgeous a place. Great place. Um would encourage people to go I would there. go back. I've only gone once, I'd go back. Would encourage people to go there and help the economy there. 
because um, maybe we should go there when the state lockdowns sure. are lifted. Let's do it, bro. Let's go to Darwin. Darwin, mate. Um, yeah. Well, thank you oh, very much for that. Laura. Yeah, That's it was a, uh, it was a, uh, yeah, it was, it was a lot. Heavy, very, very. I told you, I to- like, like you said, all of our stories are, are not nice to listen to, but that one in particular, it's like a bummer. So I'm kind of glad we didn't actually end the episode on that one. Yeah, because yeah, it's a bit. Let's lift the mood with a child abduction. Yeah. Shit. <laughs> and despite current and recent unearthings of evidence and suspects, it's still relatively unsolved. Well, it's still 100% unsolved. Like, they yeah. haven't, they still don't know what happened. No, or... they still, but there was a, yeah, anyway. So, as was touched on last episode, uh, I'm talking about the Madeline McCann disappearance, which if you haven't heard the Part first episode, two. it's a previous episode to this one. Please go check it out. Yeah, because I feel um, like this probably won't make much sense. Yeah, you, even even if one. you've been following the Madeline McCann thing and you've seen the Netflix documentary, still just listen to it because it's it's important context to what I touch in here. So last episode, I touched on the actual disappearance of Madeleine McCann, uh, the specifics and the times and the and the the dates of what happened. Um, so I, I think last episode I I briefly touched on the day by day things that followed. So I there was a there was a Channel Four dispatch. Um, staff members checking up on Madeline's disappearance, different things like that. What happened later on after her appearance on the 4th of May in the same year, um, Portuguese police started their investigation to McCann and their her parents held a press conference with Madeline's favorite toy, Cuddle Cat. I touched on that briefly last episode, but this is kind of where we lead into. So... I want to get into a bit of, it's sort of like a, a I'm, I'm going to give you the date and then I'm going to give you what happened on that date rather than go okay. too far yeah, yeah. into everything. No, that makes, yeah, yeah. So ever since Madeline's disappearance has been about 8,000 potential sightings of her and the investigation has reached to about 12 million pounds altogether or in US dollars, 17 million um, so on the 3rd of June, um, it, it was realized this year on the 3rd of June that a German pedophile in prison had to be identified as the key suspect in Madeline's disappearance. A spokesman for Kate and Jerry McCann, the parents, say it's the most significant development in 13 years. Jesus. The suspect is linked to an early 1980s Volkswagen camper, which was pictured in the Algavar in 2007. Scotland Yard says he was driving the vehicle in prior to the Luz area the days before Madeline's disappearance. The the 43-year-old suspect is serving a prison sentence for a sex crime and has two previous convictions for sexual contact with girls. Yeah, that says a lot. Yeah. So on the 4th of June, German prosecutors say they believe Madeline is now dead and police are treating her disappearance as a murder investigation. It emerges that the prime suspect who is named as German drifter Christian B, and that's all the name that I've been able to decipher, allegedly confessed to his part in Madeline's disappearance to a man in a bar. 
Christian B is named as the prime suspect in Madeline's disappearance soon after. So apparently they were sitting in a German bar when the news report came on about Madeline's disappearance and Christian B alleged that he had something to do with her missing. Right. Going missing, okay. sorry. Later, he showed his companion a video of himself raping an elderly woman. Jesus. An American tourist in Portugal, 2005. That prompted the informant to call German police to alert them that the suspects around the time of the 10th anniversary of Madeline's disappearance. So around the 10th anniversary of Madeline's disappearance, while I'm on the subject... Uh, actually, on the eve of her tenth anniversary, which is all the way back in 2017, three years ago, the McCanns sat down for an interview with the Guardian, expressing their determination to try and find what happened to their daughter. So Kate was quoted as saying, "My hope for Madeline being out there is no less than it was ten years ago." Jerry added that he was looking forward. Uh, I think there's that's the most important thing. We still have hope. When they were asked about the controversy over the cost of the investigations kate said i guess that's the the one thing because you always do feel guilty as the parent of a missing child is that other families haven't had the publicity and the money the positive is that it has brought the whole issue of missing children to the forefront and i think people have benefited in different ways which is a interesting point um i think yeah, it's, it's not really something you would have thought about it's i mean i guess so but that's the thing that that people have sort of alleged in the mccann's parents is that they seem kind of odd in the things that they say but yeah. of course when you take it out of context in how they say it and you know whatnot when you're reading it it's a very different thing so um 7th of june Scotland Yard says British police have received almost 400 tip-offs about the disappearance of Madeline since a new suspect was identified. 10th of June, it emerges that Christian B has been moved to a single jail sale for his own protection at Kiel Prison in Schleswig, Holstein, Germany's most northern state. Hmm. Six days later, the 16th of June, German prosecutor Hans Christian Walters says he's written to Madeline's parents telling them he has concrete evidence that she is dead, but he refused to tell them why. Well, that's a bit fucked up. The prosecutor said that he thinks there are more victims. And he says he told the McCanns that to reveal the evidence, it would jeopardize his investigation into Christian B. But after media coverage of the prosecutor's comments, Kate and Jerry McCann issue a rare statement and say reports that that they have received a letter from German authorities stating that Madeline is, is dead are false. Right. The couple says that the unsubstantial stories had caused unnecessary anxiety to friends and family and once again disrupted their lives. Kate and Jerry McCann, whose daughter Madeline disappeared all those years ago... Um, issued a, uh, that statement and roughly a day later 17th of june german investigators say they want to retest a saliva sample found in the holiday apartment where madeline went missing it's believed that the sample is the only trace and in 13 years uh it was it was kept, it was collected it has been impossible to extract any dna profile from it wow but you would think that having been in the system before, would it not have flagged when they ran it? The first it's an time? interesting thing because I, it's not just an advancement in technology 
It's an advancement in technology yeah, in a foreign country. Very true. You know? We're going to the next month, 12th of July. Portuguese police and firefighters explore three disused wells in their search for Madeline, but it's understood the search has found no evidence of her body. 23rd of July, Portuguese police reopen their investigation into the unsolved rape of an Irish woman who believes her attacker may have been Christian B. He was convicted of a similar rape that occurred a year after Hazel Behan was attacked in Pride da Rocha in the Algarve coast of April 2004. Hazel Bahan believes her attacker may have also been Christian B. It's kind of interesting though, because then it makes you question, would Madeline not have been outside his MO? Because he appears to be raping elderly women. Well, not just elderly women, but women in general, like elderly women, women, not really anyone who was young. So the 25th of July, a retired teacher tells Portuguese police she believes she saw Madeline McCann in a supermarket on the Algarve coast in 2017. The woman said she believed it was Madeline who would now be 17 because of the distinctive blemish in her right eye. Hmm. 28th of July, German police investigating Madeline's disappearance search an allotment near Hanover. Footage from the scene shows forensic officers and heavy machinery being used in the search, and the site was around 40 miles from the city of um, Braunschweig, where Christian B. was last registered as living. And that's sort of where we are with that. You know, there's, there's not really many notable advances in the story. The prosecutor in in the case of Christian B. believes he's the one who did it, and there's substantial evidence and i'm using quotation marks here evidence to prove so but we've seen nothing in this in the sort right yeah and obviously it's still uh, at this point it's on an ongoing case um and an, and an ongoing investigation the, the, i think the thing to remember here is that it's still being investigated it's at least still open mm, it's not yeah. just like fuck it that happened years ago whatever who gives a shit so this is where I want to get into the interesting shit. Okay. And I want to ponder some things with you. This is going to be a bit of an unconventional... Um, are we going to? Are we going back in time now? Sort of, yeah, a little okay. bit. But we're going to be discussing the conspiracy theories surrounding Madeleine McCann's disappearance. Okay, I love a good conspiracy theory. And I want to kind of like throw it off to you, get your thoughts, and we'll discuss it. Uh, I thought that might be an interesting way to go about yeah, it. Yeah, why not? So the first theory... We don't need to do things conventionally. Let's go off the beaten path. The first theory is the sex trafficking theory. And this was also touched upon on the Netflix documentary about the same disappearance. Yeah. So one theory um, that's always been the kind of prominent key theory was that Madeline was kidnapped to be trafficked in a sex trade. So, uh, as I said, the Netflix documentary of the same name um, of Madeleine McCann's disappearance took a a small look into this theory and despite it being unproven, it's still the best case scenario for being able to find um, Madeleine McCann alive. The private investigator, uh, uh, Julian um, Perebanez, fucking hell, Julian Perebanez, says that in the documentary, the value that Madeline had was very high. If they took her, it was because they were going to get a lot of money out of her. 
Kate Jesus. and Jerry McCann appealing for the information about Madeline at the time. The Telegraph reported there had been an unusually high number of assaults on young girls in the area. The report said police identified nine sexual assaults and three near misses on British girls aged between 6 to 12 in the three years before Madeline went missing. And this is what another thing that just terrifies me about the prospect of us having children one day. Like, how do you protect them from things like that without being like a helicopter parent and still allowing them to live their life? How it's do you freak shelter occurrence. them? It's such a freak occurrence because it's like you can't. You really yeah. can't. You're in Portugal, a country and that's you what terrifies with. me. See, this is why I like cats. I can lock them in the house and they don't ever get to leave. The fucked and that's up thing, where they live their life, in the house. The fucked up thing too is this is essentially Little Britain within Portugal. This is a British area. Yeah. Mostly British people living in this area. British people owning the buildings there and living there. Perma residencies. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, so, in one case from 2005, uh, just speaking on the, um, the assaults and near misses on the British girls, again aged between 6 to 12 years old, in 2005, a 10-year-old girl was assaulted in an apartment in um, Praia de Luz, close to the spot where Madeline had been had disappeared. Okay. This information correlates to the theory that Madeline was abducted by a predator or may have been taken for, for sex trafficking. Police also released an artist's impression of the person, the McCann's friend, Jane Tanner, as we t- touched on in the previous episode. If you haven't listened, please go listen had been seen carrying a child when she had been out checking on the children. I think I saw this sketch and it does look a little bit like the mugshot of that guy they released. It, uh, yeah. Um, there was a night crochet nearby the to the apartment and a couple did come forward saying they thought this sighting may have been them, but the theory still has some... has the, the, the theory this had some relation to Madeline still stands. That's the most credible theory we kind of had so far. Okay. Do um, we have uncredible ones? Because I love. Oh yeah, yeah, we have conspiracy dozen, theories. but I just kind of wanted to touch on that one a bit. It seems kind of like the the alphabet killer thing, where it's like it's hard to connect the dots, but it makes sense. Yeah. But it's hard to realize: does it make sense because we want it to make sense, or does it just make sense? You know what I mean? What? Is it is it too convenient? <laughs> Of a truth, what? is it too convenient of a of a of a matching up? Oh, like that, that I see we what want you mean. to be like, oh, that makes sense. Yeah, you like that has to be making like the dots. Carol Baskin match. owns tigers, and the body was never found, and the and tigers eat whole bodies. Oh, it makes sense. Like, does is it just a us trying to be like, yeah, that fits? I don't know. I guess. Well, I'm hopefully we'll we'll find out one day. Yeah. Okay. So this one's a shorter one and it's probably the most uncredible one because it's essentially just people on Twitter posing their opinions. But the second theory was the parents selling theory. So one of the, probably the next most popular theory, even though it's the most uncredible theory, um, was that Kate and Jerry McCann in Madeline's disappearance had actually sold their daughter off to be abducted. Oh, it's just so awful. Yeah. So there's and literally this is just people on Twitter. Like and but I had to add this in just because it is one of the theories. I did pull one of the tweets, so it was 
there was this guy called Jack and his handle is real Jack Cocking, which very unfortunate <laughs> name. So sorry. Or about that. the best name ever. Yeah. Hey Jack, why don't you come over and give me a cocking? Oh dear. Uh, he's quoted as saying, Madeline McCann's parents organized the whole abduction. They sold her to the traffickers and sedated her on the night so she wouldn't wake up while being taken. So she wouldn't cause a scene and draw attention, making it easier for the abduction to take place. I mean, I don't know. To me, that just doesn't really make that much sense. It's a stretch. Um, I think, again, it's one of those things where you look at and you go, Kind of makes sense with the um, the Tanner sighting where the child was reportedly sleeping in a man's arms and it's not her father. And if that was Madeline, it would be make sense if she was a sedated. Yeah. But it's also one of those things where you go, but does that make sense because I just read that this person thinks she was sedated? Yeah. Or you could also say that the people who abducted her sedated her. You could. Absolutely, yeah. Like that can be applied to both sides. Anyway, it's kind of like a conspiracy theory of a conspiracy theory. It's a conspiracy yeah. theory of the first child abduction theory yeah. that the parents were in on it. Uh, the third theory is the parents' drugging theory. So there are a few different um, variations of the whole trafficking thing and drugging thing. But okay. this one was that Kate and Jerry were named by uh, Portuguese authorities as official suspects and were interrogated about their daughter's disappearance, which if you also seen the, the Netflix only documentary, this is also touched upon. So some people think that um, Kate and Jerry drugged Madeline and something went wrong in the, the doping of Madeline mm. and they believe that they killed her and the adoption story is all a cover-up. So mm, Yeah, I don't buy that one. Yeah. The police thought the couple might have killed her with an overdose of cowpaw, which is, I believe is a sleeping sedative, if I remember. Don't quote me on that. I think that was touched upon in the documentary. Um, it was briefly brought up and they, the Portuguese police were super adamant about this one, either because they wanted to throw off the case and just get it over with, um, or they found something they were just trying to cling to, but... It's a big theory that people genuinely believe believe that the parents were doping Madeline to help her get to sleep or to shut her up, and they went too overboard with it. Right. So, to touch on the Netflix documentary, it looks into how sniffer dogs were used in the case. They had detected a scent of blood and a human body inside the McCann's apartment and their hire car. People have been suspicious about Kate McCann in particular for a while, and the dogs sensed the smell of human body and blood on her clothing too. And she refused to answer 48 questions in her interview with the police. Investigator Mm -hmm. and author Anthony Summers told the documentary producers, by late summer, there was an implication that they may have over-sedated her by administering a drug. His co-author, Robin Swan, said, Essentially, the Portuguese cop's case against the McCanns involved the following. That she died by accident on May 3rd. That the supposed checks on the children had been concocted. Her body had subsequently been transported in the rental car they had rented some weeks later. However, months later, forensic reports confirmed that there were no viable linkings in the evidence to Madeline's DNA in the holiday apartment or the rental car. This theory is again raised by the Netflix documentary by the disgraced 
uh, Portuguese officer Guancalo Amaral. All those Portuguese names are hard Damn. to say because it's not just like Spanish. It's like a it's a fucking different kind of Portuguese. Yeah, perhaps. But but that's what I mean. It's like <laughs> Portuguese language yeah. is like a take on uh, Spanish. Yeah. So it's kind of like you go, you kind of go into this like Spanish role, and you're like, uh, actually, it's not that. Actually, you would be <clears throat> incorrect, sir. Yeah. So that it's an interesting point where I was reading a lot of the um, information about this one was they touched on a lot of the about the Portuguese police and specifically the officer Goncalo. Yeah. Where realistically, it just kind of highlighted how fucking shit house the the. Yeah, the whole thing was. how much of a shit show I was. B, how terrible the Portuguese police had it because they had this essentially a white UK resident's daughter missing in their fucking country. So there's all this media now looking onto over their shoulders into why the fuck a um, Commonwealth country young girl is missing in their country. Yeah, of course. So, uh, he released, the uh, the Portuguese officer, Goncalo, released a book and a TV documentary called The Truth of the Lie, in which he alleged the McCanns faked the whole abduction to cover up that they had accidentally killed her. Jesus. The McCanns claimed the book was unfounded and grossly defam- defam- defamatory and launched legal action against Goncalo in 2009. In 2015, Kate and Jerry McCann were awarded around £450,000 in damages by the Portuguese court. However, in April last year, Amaral won an appeal against the decision. So, here's the fourth theory, the Portuguese predator theory. Mm-hmm. There's another of the Madeleine McCann's conspiracy theories that is explored in the Netflix documentary, Police looked into the case of a man who was wanted in connection to the sexual assault of five young girls in a Portuguese holiday resort. He was described as a lone intruder who attacked the girls in their beds, and two of these attacks happened to be in Praia de la Luz, where Madeline went missing from. Yeah. Anthony Summers says in the Netflix documentary, one startling element is the sheer number of sexual predators in the area at the time. Well, that's the same. Very that's good the point. same with the Jean Bonnet thing. Yeah, like the yeah. sheer number of fucking sexual predators that lived. What was it like a three mile radius yeah, from the house? Exactly. And you're like, um, yeah, I don't know if I think the parents did it anymore. No, I think there's just a severe lacking in the whole sexual predator register system. Yeah, child sex anyway, offender register. I have a lot of thoughts on that. I won't go into it. Yeah, but it is. An interesting thing that's brought up when you hear, like, oh, there was how many sexual predators in this fucking area? Yeah. Of, like, a, a thousand people? Yeah. Like, and then what? you're like, and we really still think that the parents did it? Yeah. Like, really? Like, fuck off. Uh, in this case, in particular, the predator had been making his way into houses where British tourists were staying and allegedly laying on their beds with children. Oh, gross. He was wearing a medical mask and described as speaking English, but sounding foreign. Okay. Number five is the couple theory, another theory explored in the Netflix documentary that she was taken by a childless couple and raised on her as their own. In 2017, the Telegraph reported it had long been suggested that she may have been stolen to order by criminals acting on behalf of a wealthy childless couple. 
Witnesses claimed to have seen suspicious characters around the resort in the days before her disappearance who could have been acting as spotters, searching for a child that fitted their requirements. So there were reports of suspicious, suspicious man's men sorry, hanging around the Ocean Club resort where the McCanns were staying days before Madeline went missing. Hmm. Which is an interesting theory. Uh, one of the more kind of, you know, out there ones, the really trying to get something to stick. Yeah. And I guess that's the other thing, again, similar to the Jean Bonnet case, there's just so little like physical evidence. It doesn't exactly. really give you much to yeah. grasp onto. And there's weird circumstances too, where it's like, it kind of points to the parent in some regard, but that's also been disputed in some regards. Yeah, I don't know if I ever really thought the parents did it, to be honest. It just, again, like I said last week, to me, it just doesn't make sense. Like, you don't yeah. go to a foreign country to kill, like, you just wouldn't. You It's do just it an odd anyway. thing. But even, like, if they accidentally killed their daughter with medicine... Yeah, like they were in a foreign country. There's no way that they knew the area well enough to dispose of her body for it to never be found. Yeah. But is is there a prison sentence for for manslaughter of a, of a minor? Um, I don't know. I think it would depend on the circumstances. I feel like that if you... I'm not sure. You know, I, I mean, fucking who knows. Anyway, so the next theory is the Enigma Theory. The Enigma Theory... Oh, is, I like this one just yeah. purely based off its name. Is that some people believe Madeline McCann never existed in the first place. <laughs> <laughs> what? Yeah. <laughs> what? Yeah. There's photos of... What? Yeah, no, but here's the thing. Oh my God, please continue. <laughs> it's probably one of the more out there ones, definitely. Um, but there's still a huge fucking like fandom behind it. Some people think that she isn't an actual person and she was made up by the British government to distract oh tension my God. from other news yeah. stories or to raise money for the country. Even so, the search for Madeleine McCann has cost nearly £12 million. That's, that's my favourite one. That's the whole theory. No evidence to back it up There's whatsoever? There's nothing yeah. further. Yeah, to, cool. It's just one of those, yeah. the government wants to fucking put the virus in you to... to, to they're going to inject yeah. you with 5G. No, they're not. They're fucking not. They're really not. Uh, so the next one is the discovery theory. This theory is that Madeline was actually found alive, but her case had been had become so high profile that the lie that she was still missing had to be upheld for her to be able to live a normal life, which... Again, in the real fucking world, wouldn't fucking happen. No. That would never happen. That, no. Even if Madeline was given a new identity, any girl her age spotted with McCann's or that which looked like her with her obvious... Um, Little eye thing. eye thing, yeah. yeah. Uh, she would be constantly hounded by press and people of the public that she would never be able to live a normal life regardless there would there would be something there's been millions of freaking Tupac sightings you know what I mean like there's no way in hell someone's not going to find you eventually yeah the second last theory is the tourism theory so this is another of the Madeleine McCann conspiracy theories explored in Netflix documentary it has been claimed that Portuguese authorities framed the McCanns in a desperate attempt to save the tourism trade in Portugal. 
they didn't want people to think that Portugal was the kind of place where children were unsafe and as such horrible crimes that could take place were um non-existent quote-unquote non-existent and this such crime was pinned all on Kate and Jeremy Camp which the the context of which makes sense in the in the fact that there is a huge issue with obviously with sexual predators and yeah. sexual assaulters in Portugal at the, at the time it would make sense in some way to take the eye off of that the 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 tourism side of things yeah. to be like that's a theory away. I can get behind but the the evidence supporting it again is fucking stupid you know what I mean? Like it's, it, it's. Are you calling me stupid? No, I'm not calling you stupid. <laughs> I'm calling. Anyway, so we, we've seen that the Portuguese police have quite publicly just, just like have talked about. They think the Kate and Jeremy McCann were behind her disappearance. Yeah. Um, this theory though comes from Edinburgh tycoon Brian Kennedy, who has donated to the fund to help find Madeline. He said uh, in a quote, you can you could understand how the mood of public opinion would go from sympathy to vilification. Let's find somebody to blame for this that doesn't make us look bad. I think it's all tied into tourism, industry and tourism being down and the country's GDP. It's much easier to say, aha, we found some idea later that the parents could be involved in this. Speaking for the first time about this involvement, Brian Kennedy said he was convinced the McCanns weren't involved within 12 seconds. Mm. He said they both looked like a wreck after 12 seconds just reading the emotions. Everything told me 100% that this woman, Kate McCann, is genuine and she is a victim. Again, it makes sense. Yeah, you know, yeah, it's yeah. a it's a definitely a plausible theory that, um, in the, in the sense of why well, I mean, she went that's, missing, that's less of a theory on what happened and just more the theory, of a theory of behind the, backlash, the investigation. Really. I yes, guess. I, which I, is why I'm I feel like I can kind of get behind that one fairly quickly because, yeah. Anyway, yeah, it's not so much a theory on her disappearance; it's more so a theory on the the defamation on. The McCann's. The and the Portuguese um, authorities yeah. side. The last case, the wandering theory. Another theory is that Madeline simply wandered out of the apartment of her own free will and was tragically killed in an accident. One Redditor says, quote, I think she woke up, left the apartment and wandered off. She died either by drowning in the ocean, kids of age love water, or by some other form of misadventure. I do not think foul play was involved. Drowning is the number one cause of accidental death for kids age one to four. They lack the capacity to understand the dangers of water and it's why pools are required to be fenced in, at least where I live. The draw is very strong and kids don't realize that they are in trouble until it's too late. The Netflix documentary states that the apartment door was left open and the location of their room was near a road where an accident could have happened. However, this theory would lead to further speculation as to how she could disappear without a trace afterwards. I also don't think a child that young would be likely to wander out of the apartment at night time. Like most kids kids have a universal fear of the dark. Exactly. But also just your entire world at ages one to six to even to eight is the room you're in yeah. the house you're in you don't understand the concept of there's an entire world out there where the fuck are you going like even i was once 
when we were living, um, I was living with my parents and my grandparents. I was four years old and my mum was a couple months pregnant, maybe six months pregnant with my younger sister. And I ran out of the house down the street and my my very pregnant mother was running after me, yelling at people to try and stop me, screaming down the streets, trying to get someone to attempt You're such to pull me. Of course I'm fucking that. sprinting. Mum doesn't know where the fuck I'm going. I turn a corner, I go down the street, she loses me. She thinks, where's he gone? Nearby, there's a lolly shop or a candy store for Americans. Right. She walks in. Where am I? Right there. The, the lolly store that we used to frequent every now and then. You little sugar. My, your entire it. world at that point is what I know. Yeah. There's no way in hell that I'm going, there must be some sort of candy store around here at four years of age. Yeah. You'd only go where you knew. Exactly. So yeah. the whole theory of her just leaving just doesn't really make sense. Kids don't really do that. Yeah. I don't know if I buy that one. Even like, you know, if you want to say she left, she would have to be going somewhere she was familiar with at yeah. some point. Yeah, very true. But anyway, that's kind of everything I have on the Madeline McCann case. Part two of the coverage is done. Yeah, who knows? Maybe one day we'll have a part three, depending on how things go. Well, with this, I hope uh, so. Case. Like, I hope for the family's sake we have a part three with a resolution. Yeah. You know, um, good or bad, I think you would want an outcome. What's interesting I wanted to point out as well is how polarizing this whole case has been when you compare it to now, from now, 40 years ago in the Atlanta child abductions and murders. Yeah. How different it is now compared to then. And admittedly, it's two different cases. Apples and oranges, you have one young child murdered and you have over 30, I think it was, children murdered in Atlanta. Yeah. Um, but the, the the idea that two of those cases were solved and they were people who were the, over the age of 18, the rest all under uh, around from like ages of like 8 to 10 to 12, still cases unsolved. Mm. And this we have cases like this that are happening years ago, still ongoing. Yeah. Um, that being said, the Atlanta cases have been reopened because they don't believe that um, he did them all. They don't believe he did them all. Yeah. The the current mayor of Atlanta, I believe it was, has reopened the cases because she doesn't believe it can be all be on Wayne Williams, who who you know FBI and um, John Douglas believe was behind at least most of the murders, which I still believe as well. Yeah. But you can't... I I think it's kind of risky to say that every single one of them was pinned on him. Yeah, it's... um, It's a lot. It's a lot to take in. But, yeah, it's interesting the difference between the two because, you know, the, the, the how different the political world is right now. Yeah. The climate of everything. It's all a bit... You have global outrage and, and the internet and newspapers and, you know, it's just a completely different time now. Yeah. Oof. Well, that was a, that was a lot of information to take in. Yeah. Well, I hope um, this has been enlightening to some people. Yeah. Um, yes. We finished our Palomas. 
We did. I mean, they were polished off a while ago, let's yeah, be honest. Yeah, let's be completely honest. Let's be honest. It was good. It was a good sippable drink, though. Yeah, it's very summery. Yeah. I think anything with tequila is very summery. The whiskey sours we had last time were very, like, oh, that was so good. couple sipfuls and you're, like, oh, smashing it. that was so good. Yeah. I love them so much. Um, but the Paloma is a very nice sippable drink. Very delicious. Yeah. Delicious. Well... It's that time of the week, Tama. It is. We have our user-submitted story. This time it's from the lovely Kim, who, again, is a fellow podcaster. So I'm gonna, we're going to play her story that she sent us in, and then we're going to talk about it, and I'll share you all of Kim's podcast details. So awesome. You can go and follow that. This is my new favorite segment of it's the show. It's very cool. It's I very love, cool. Really I'm glad we're one. doing it. Yeah. And let's play the story. Thanks to Laura and Tama, Best Served Cold Podcast, for all their support for Kudzu Killer's Homicide and Sweet Tea. Hey, y'all. This is a story about the serial killer who lived down the street from my mom and dad. Back in the 90s, Robert Eugene Brashers had been in prison a couple of times already, once for shooting a woman in Port St. Lucie, Florida in 1985, where he was released from prison in 1989, and in February 1992 in Georgia for possession of a stolen weapon and car. When he left prison that last time in February 1997, he headed to my mom's town where he had family. Creepy. Yeah, really. In April of 1998, Brashers was arrested while breaking into the home of a single woman for whom he had done some handiwork. The police said he had cut the phone lines to the home and was armed. He also had a video camera and other tools with him. He was taken into custody but later released. Why in the world? I don't know. Mm, Scary. Yeah. In January of 1999, officers located a vehicle with stolen tag in a parking lot of a Super 8 motel in Kennett, Missouri. That's about maybe 15, 20 miles from, from my hometown. Officers were directed to a room where Brashers was located and Brashers was found hiding under the bed armed with a gun. After four hours of negotiations, Brashers let the other occupants of the room go before shooting himself. He died six days later. Now you'd think that was the end of it, but it wasn't. Oh no. In 2006, as advances were made in DNA testing, Detectives in Missouri and North Carolina and Memphis, Tennessee, were able to link DNA to three cases that they were investigating, three cold cases. Love and DNA. Yeah. Then later, through the lab that conducts DNA testing for places like Ancestry.com and 23andMe, mm-hmm. were able to link that DNA to a family member of Robert Eugene Brashers. Wow. It seems our Robert had been a busy man after being released from the prison in Georgia and heading toward Arkansas. Just after his release from his first stint in prison, he had murdered a single woman in Greenville, South Carolina. Her case had been cold for 28 years. Wow. Then on the way to my hometown in March 1997, he made a stop over in Memphis where he raped a 14-year-old girl in front of her mother and friends. All of them were bound and gagged, and they were able to give a description, but the Memphis police didn't catch the rapist at that time. Hmm. Then in April of 1998, a woman and her daughter were murdered in the small town of Portageville, Missouri, and the 12-year-old daughter had been raped Hmm. and tied up. A few hours later... And about 45 minutes drive away in Dyersburg, Tennessee, another woman was shot and injured while she was wrestling with an armed man who'd come to her door, pretending mm. to be looking for somebody. Oh my God. She yelled for her children to grab the shotgun, Lark. Grab that yeah. shotgun. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm sure they'd been taught to use it. Mm-hmm. 
But in 2018, all these assaults and murders were connected through advanced DNA testing and found to have been committed by Robert Eugene Brashears. Thanks to his daughter, the DNA was confirmed to be his. He's buried in a church cemetery near my mother's home. Still searching for cold cases to see if there are any more murders he may have committed. Oh my goodness! Yeah, seriously, right? <laughs> well, big you know, kudos to the daughter. Really, because you know she could have said no. Right. And there's nothing really they can do about it if she does say no, but she didn't, and she wanted to give closure to all these people who'd been waiting for 30 years to find out who killed their family members. So good for her. Good for her. And that's the story of the serial killer who lived down the street. Wow. Well, thanks again for having us on your special Aussie station. Thanks, guys. Bye. Oh, my goodness. Hey, y'all. That's so cool. Grab that shotgun. I love that. That's... I, I feel like as um Australians, American accents, it's just they're, they're so cute. I was just gushing that, just listening to that. that was, that's so, in like, that is just crazy. And I love the fact that it was like further crimes were solved so many years. Like we love DNA yeah. technology. The fucking like 23 me, man. Killer. We never even knew about that kind of shit. It was just kind of like a fun thing to be like, Oh, who am I related to? <laughs> yeah. But thank you so much uh, to Kim and Lark from Kudzu Killers. We're going to include all of their social media and their show link. Their show is fantastic. Uh, they have a true crime podcast just like us. Mm-hmm. And you should definitely follow them because they are, Fabulous. Yep. Thank but, you to our Southern gals. Yeah. Thank you so much for taking the time to record that. We It's so cool getting to hear other people's stories, like the serial kid that, that lived down the road from your mum and dad. Yeah. Like, it's crazy. It's in, And that's really crazy. The, the whole six degrees of separation thing is we just bizarre. We love it. Wow. And we feel very special that people want to take the time out of their busy schedules yeah. to record these for and us. Like, so thank you Let's be much. honest. It's If you want to send something in... It's good and sedative for your show. So, you know. Well, yeah. Plug yourselves. Do plug, it. plug yourselves. Let's do a little bit of cross-pollination. Yeah. Let's get it going. Even if you're not a podcaster, just you can have your voice on a yeah, show. Yeah, if you're listening listens. to this, this is not something that you have to be a fellow podcaster to submit to. If you're listening to this yeah. and you have a story that you would like to submit, our email address is bestservedcoldpodcast at gmail.com mm-hmm. and we are the BSC podcast on all social media. So hit us up if you have a story because we'd love to hear them because yep. it honestly like makes my week. And as us Aussies like to say, you can be uh, any Tom, Dick and Harry. Is uh, that an Australian saying? I think it is. Yeah, I think I think it's an Australian thing. Huh. Anyway, you can be uh, any, any Tom, Tom, Dick, Dick and Harry. Harry. Uh, it doesn't matter who you are, send in your stories and we'll share them here at the end of the episodes. Uh, and as long as we have them, we'll be, we'll be showing them as for you listeners. As long as you keep sending them, we'll yeah. keep playing so them. We're kind of just, we're kind of betting we're on you guys. We're kind of counting on you so, oh, so, oh, it's got a bit awkward there at the end. Throw a dog a bone there. Uh, we're just trying to keep the lights on, honestly. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, like we we touched on a bit, we might be um, we're figuring out extra content for um, our Patreon. Yep, so, so that should be coming soon. soon. We're just gonna hash out how exactly we want to do things. There's tiers to the different, and Patreons. we don't also it's something because I feel like as much effort as we put into these episodes, it's free content. So. 
there's not as much pressure to make it perfect or feel like we're giving people their money's worth or whatever because it's free. Like you can listen to this. It costs you no money to listen to this. Producing paid content for people is a lot more stress because you oh, feel yeah. like you need to and you want to give people a certain level of quality because they've they've spent their money to support your show and they deserve to have a high level of quality for that. So not that we don't put a high level of quality into the show, yeah. Yeah. but there's no pressure to do this. Like we just sit in our lounge room and dick around and have fun and it's a bit more of a pressure cooker to create something that's paid content. So we're going to do it. We just want to do it right. Exactly. So yeah. We'll, and we'll, we'll figure it out. To know you know, we'll figure when it it's out. ready. So yeah, keep an eye out for that. That'll probably be on our socials when we when we when we, when we put that up, and probably um whatever episode around about that happens, we'll definitely update you on the episode. Yeah, for sure. Um, and yeah, I just want to say that thank you for everyone t- for listening. I love you guys uh, very much. But it- Tama, what are you grateful for this week? We're not done oh, yet. No, I'm, I'm just I'm, I mean, I'm just professing my love. Oh, for sorry, everyone. I thought you were signing off, and I no. was like, we're not done here. We need to end on a high note. Um, I'm grateful for. I had a not so much of a show, but I had a bit of a performance music wise this week um, with my band Juno. We did like a little mini thing at the Kasula Powerhouse Museum where we just basically got filmed a bunch performing two of our songs. And it felt like it was like, you know, uh, you know, not a, it wasn't a real gig. There wasn't people there. There wasn't really any, it was just people us getting just filmed. Just return to normalcy though. Yeah, and, yeah, but it was just fun performing, man. I've just missed it so much. And it was, I'm just very grateful that I had the opportunity to do so. I feel like you always have these very like deep existential things that you're grateful for. And then I'm like, I'm really grateful for the new television series I'm watching, <laughs> which I, that is my thing. Like I'm, we started watching how to get away with murder yeah. and I'm really enjoying it. And I am someone who with everything that I do, I don't have a lot, a huge amount of spare time. So I am grateful for little things like that, like shows that I enjoy watching and that in my spare time I can you know, not feel like I'm wasting my time watching shitty television. So that's what I'm grateful for. I should start going first when we do these things because <laughs> mine's always like, I'm grateful for the pretty new glasses I bought. And you're like, yeah. I'm grateful for you. This is like, I'm fucking... grateful for your existence as my life partner. And I'm like, I like pink. Yeah, it's like a Miss America contest over here. Yeah, I just want world peace. Yeah. And countries like such as? That don't have maps. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because some countries don't have television, so I'm grateful for it. But uh, I don't really have anything else to add to this, no, do you? Not really. Um, again, shout out to Matt Stapleton. You're probably you're probably listening. And to Josh, and we uh, got a yeah, shout out Josh. to Josh. We um, found out that one of our other friends is also a fan of the show, which yeah. I didn't know. So if, shout out to Joshy if you're listening. If both of you guys are listening to this, please message me as soon as you hear it. Apple bottom jeans. Boots with the fur. No, just apple bottom jeans. Why can't I add something? Because it's not. That's not the game. <sighs> okay, fine. All right, and that's how I know you guys are true friends. Otherwise, fuck you all. Fake friends. <laughs> you fake motherfuckers. And uh, I Scene. will. I will add one more thing. Actually, I oh, will say okay. to all our American listeners. Look, I'm not going to lie. Yeehaw. I'm reading the news. It's It doesn't look fun over there at the moment. No. Like between the election circus and COVID, you, I 
do not envy any of you. So stay sane, take care of yourself, make sure you're indulging in self-care when you can and all that stuff because it actually, it like as an outsider observer, it does not look yeah. enjoyable. And I'm very glad I don't have to partake in it. And even just our microdose of what's going on here, it's so detrimental to Scotty, your mental health. Scotty Morrison shitting his pants in the Ingadine. Yeah. Like McDonald's car Donald, I, Donald Trump Jr. I told someone on Twitter about that because we were talking about we were comparing yeah. like leaders and I was like, just <laughs> Google Scott Morrison, Ingadine McDonald's. Yeah. They came back, they were like, I feel like I'm caught up now. And I was like, it's a wild ride, I tell you. It's he's also ride. been fired from like most of his jobs he's ever had. And hopefully he'll and get fired from this one. He is the prime minister of Australia. Oh, look, he's better than Trump. I'll give him that. Yeah, but that's... Not by much. Yeah. But he's better than Trump. That's like saying being murdered is better than getting cancer, though. That's true. It's like, you know, one's bad and one's, I guess, worse. But realistically... Yeah. Neither know. of them are good. Neither <laughs> no. of them are preferable choices. No. no. But anyway, I'm Neither grateful... Neither of them are Jacinta Arden. Tama's grateful for the joy of performing... Mm-hmm. And life itself, and I'm grateful for television. So, yeah, cool. <laughs> There's a Tom Segura joke about it. Now like, I sound very uncultured. Like I need a hobby, and he's like, I just realized I had a. Ho- I have a next hobby. week. I'm going to come TV. back and be like, I'm grateful for the beam of light I saw refracting off a butterfly's wings <laughs> today. You're be like, I did a really big poop today, <laughs> and it made me feel better in the stomach. <laughs> I think I'm I like, laughed so good, loud. Laura. I think I just clipped. Very the, good. I think I just clipped the mic. That's fine. I can fix that. Cool. All right. Well, thanks again for tuning in. Uh, we are the BSC podcast on all socials. Check us out on Instagram, Twitter, and the Book of Faces. And <laughs> yeah, nice. that's that's all I've got to say. Do you have anything else to add, or will we peace out and leave these? Beautiful people alone. Peace out, motherfuckers. Bye. Bye.